Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. If you're wondering where my co-host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in the same group, is, don't worry, he's here, but today he's in the hot seat. Gary, hopefully you're ready to switch roles today. I'm so excited. Thank you, Kristen. Today, we'll be discussing the Supreme Court's hearing of oral arguments in Charles G. Moore versus United States. We'll start with a brief review of the case and then jump into the oral arguments themselves, including a discussion of the arguments made by the petitioner and the government and how the justices reacted to those arguments. So with that, let's jump into the background of the case. So on December 5th, 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Moore. As a quick refresher, the petitioner's argument in the case is that the Section 965 Mandatory Repatriation Tax, or the MRT, which, as our listeners may recall, required a U.S. shareholder to pay a one-time tax on a CFC's accumulated post-1986 ENP for tax years ending on or after December 31, 2017, was unconstitutional because it taxed unrealized amounts and as a result was not an income tax that's exempted under the 16th Amendment from apportionment among the states. The taxpayers here are Charles and Kathleen Moore, who had invested $40,000 into Kizencraft, an Indian CFC, and held just over 10% of the corporation's common shares. The Moores owed approximately $15,000, so a relatively small amount under the MRT, for their share of Kizencraft's earnings. In our prior episode, More Than Words, we talked through the background on the case and we explored how the case, which will specifically resolve the constitutionality of Section 965 as it applies to the Moors, may have much broader implications depending on how the Supreme Court ultimately decides the case. So there's potentially a lot at stake here. So before diving into the oral arguments before the Supreme Court, Gary, why is this a case in which the Supreme Court decided to grant cert? Thanks, Kristen. The fact that the court granted cert in this case came as a bit of a shock until you really understand the context of the case. This really isn't about the $15,000 tax bill the Moors got, not even really about 965 at all, the MRT. But it became clear in the briefing from petitioners, but also in the oral arguments, as we'll talk about, that this case is really a stalking horse for a wealth tax. And it bears sort of understanding what we mean by wealth tax, because I think that term is used pretty indiscriminately. But there are two flavors of wealth tax. The first is what I call the Warren wealth tax which would tax ultra-millionaires, billionaires, based on a percentage of their net worth. So 2% on households worth between 50 million and 1 billion, an additional 1% annual surtax for 3% overall on net worth of households above 1 billion. But then there's the Biden wealth tax, which is on unrealized gains. It's not on net worth. It would require households with a net worth above $100 million to pay 20% tax on not just their taxable income, but also gains in the total value 
of their tradable assets, which includes stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and other securities. This is really just a mark-to-market tax for the truly wealthy people. So this case, and we'll come back to this, is ostensibly about 965, but you'll see that many of the justices, particularly the conservative justices, had an eye towards weighing in potentially on the constitutionality of one of these wealth taxes, which obviously has not been passed yet. Thanks, Gary. I think that's really helpful context and sets the stage for the case itself. So let's talk about the much anticipated oral arguments in the case. The lawyers for the petitioners spoke first here. So Gary, what was the petitioner's main argument? The main argument for the petitioner is quite simple. The Moors in this case did not receive a dividend from Kizencraft. They did not receive property separate from their stock. They did not realize income. And the petitioner argued that under Eisner v. McCumber, that there is a realization requirement in the 16th Amendment, that income within the meaning of the 16th Amendment means realized income. Because the Moors did not realize income in this case, the petitioner argued this is effectively a tax on property, a direct tax, and therefore must be apportioned. So this ultimately came down for the petitioners on the lack of a realization in the case of the Moors. Several of the justices, including Sotomayor and Barrett, focused their questioning on comparing the MRT to other similar regimes that attribute income of an entity to its owner, such as Subpart F and Subchapter S, among others. And clearly, as commentators have noted and was clear from the justices' questioning in the oral arguments, there is a big concern that if the court held broadly that Section 965 was unconstitutional, that several of these longstanding regimes would also be invalidated. What did the petitioner have to say about subpart F and what distinctions did he draw between the MRT and these other regimes? That's a good question. I I think subpart F played a prominent role in oral arguments, a lot more than I would have anticipated. And quite frankly, I was surprised at how well-versed the justices were in subpart F. At the outset, should be noted, the petitioners conceded that subpart F is constitutional. And that was obviously a strategic decision on the part of the petitioner to not take on subpart F. Subpart F has the benefit of history on its side. While the court has never ruled on the constitutionality of subpart F, it's been around for 60 plus years. And lower courts have weighed in and found it constitutional. So the petitioner did not want to take on subpart F, but then he had to then distinguish between subpart F and the MRT. I mean, the MRT is actually a provision in subpart F, but how is the MRT different than subpart F? How can subpart F be constitutional and the MRT be unconstitutional? And here the petitioner brought up three differences in the MRT from subpart F, three constitutional defects. The first one is that sub F in taxes only certain categories of income that are prone to abuse and income shifting, passive and mobile income, whereas the MRT taxes all general business income of CFCs. Interestingly, no one here, the petitioner, the government, or the court brought up guilty 
because that guilty actually does tax all business income of CFCs or almost all. But in any case, no justice voiced overt support for this particular argument. And I think the Solicitor General made the point that this argument sort of turns the 16th Amendment on its head. I mean, the 16th Amendment said that the type of income should not matter in determining whether it doesn't have to be apportioned under the 16th Amendment. And the argument that petitioner made would, again, reinstitute some kind of category of income requirement in the Constitution, which is sort of odd. So a second defect that the petitioner brought up is that MRT taxes historic earnings, whereas subpart F taxes on a current basis. And a third related defect was that the MRT could tax a shareholder on the earnings of a CFC generated while that shareholder wasn't even a shareholder. This could happen where, for instance, the shareholder acquired shares in the CFC soon before the testing date in 2017. That income, the MRT would attribute the historic earnings of the CFC to the shareholder and tax that shareholder on its earnings. Importantly, that was not a situation here where the Moores owned Kizencraft since since its founding. But in any case, on these second and third purported defects, other than perhaps Justice Alito, no justice expressed much, if any, support. Rather, there seemed to be some consensus among the justices that this was really just a substantive due process question. That is, is it fundamentally unfair to tax a shareholder on a CFC's historic earnings when you've allowed these earnings to be deferred to date and you said that you weren't going to tax those earnings until distributions? Gorsuch brought up the point of, can the government tax your traditional 401k assets tax today, rothified, so to speak? even though you sort of promised that they wouldn't be taxed until you distribute them. And the second point is, it, when is it appropriate to impute the income of an entity to another person, including its shareholders? So I'm not a constitutional lawyer, arguably not a lawyer at all, but my understanding is that substantive due process represents a very low bar for the government to overcome, that it just needs to demonstrate a rational basis for the law. In that regard, the MRT's taxation of historic earnings and sometimes attribution to the wrong shareholder can be justified on the grounds that it was required for the transition from the deferral system to our full inclusion system post-TCJ. So it's a long way of saying that I don't think that the petitioner won over many justices in this argument, was able to persuade enough justices that subpart F and the MRT are fundamentally constitutionally different. So moving from the petitioner's argument, after the petitioner's lawyer completed his arguments, the government, who was represented by the U.S. Solicitor General, was up to argue its case to the justices. Gary, can you talk to us a little bit about what the Solicitor General focused on as her main argument in her opening statement for the government? She made a couple points. One is the 16th Amendment allows Congress to tax income. It doesn't say anything about realized income. It's just income. And not only are there many economists who would say that income includes just appreciation and assets, there were several taxes in the 19th century similar to the MRT. 
and then they tax shareholders on the undistributed earnings of their corporations. And these taxes the court had upheld, and as a result of the drafters of the 16th Amendment would have understood that taxes on income includes taxes on the profits of entities owned by the individual. So while petitioners take their case on McCumber, the Solicitor General argued that McCumber was distinguished and limited in subsequent cases to its facts, which dealt with stock dividends that are not at issue here. In the end, maybe the most important point that the Solicitor General argued was that even if there was a realization requirement in the 16th Amendment, she didn't concede that point, but she said even if there's a realization requirement in the 16th Amendment, the MRT satisfies the realization requirement because the income that's being attributed to the shareholder has been realized by the CFC, by Kisencraft, and that there is no constitutional prohibition from uh, attributing the income of an entity to its shareholders. And outside, again, of a you know potentially substantive due process issue, Congress can pretty freely attribute the tax of a entity to its shareholders, including the income of CFCs to its U.S. shareholders. So clearly the attribution argument played a prominent role in the oral arguments. Why do you think that is? It's interesting because the attribution argument does show up in the briefing, but I, I had read it as more of a backup argument to there is no realization requirement. Here, I feel like the Solicitor General made a strategic decision and really led with the attribution requirement. And I think the reason she made that decision is that the attribution requirement permits the court to uphold the MRT, which obviously is her goal, without necessarily having to weigh in on the realization requirement at all, and whether whether it exists in the 16th Amendment or not. The Solicitor General, I think, would prefer that this court not weigh in on the realization requirement at all. So given the current composition of the court, she probably wasn't all that confident that she would win that argument. So if she staked her case on there not being a realization requirement, there's a good chance she would lose. So, you know, I think the theory is that when and if Congress actually adopts a wealth tax, including the Biden flavor mark to market tax on the ultra wealthy, it could be that the composition of the court has changed. And so, you know, it sort of brings up the procrastinator's motto, why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? It certainly, the Solicitor General made the point several times that, you know, you shouldn't deem this tax unconstitutional just because you're worried about a tax that hasn't been enacted yet. Let's have that fight if and when the tax is passed by Congress. So clearly, it sounds like a strategic move. How did the justices generally react to the attribution argument and why? I, surprisingly well. I mean, it's no surprise that the liberal wing of the court, you know, Jackson, Sotomayor, Kagan, were receptive. These justices cited to the attribution of income of partnerships and S-corps to their owners as precedent. 
But these same points were also echoed by Kavanaugh and Barrett, definitely from the conservative wing of the court. Even Thomas indicated his belief that the petitioner's argument would be, quote, stronger if the MRT were a tax on property rather than a tax with respect to an interest in an entity because of this attribution theory. The justices seemed to gravitate towards the attribution argument because there was a real concern expressed by a majority of the justices, I believe, that ruling the MRT was unconstitutional would have profound and potentially uncertain consequences to the U.S. tax system. Once you say the MRT is unconstitutional, what other provisions are also unconstitutional? I mean, that would sort of launch a debate in the courts that would take potentially decades to resolve. But there was also a concern expressed by at least a plurality of the justices that ruling that there was no realization requirement at all would effectively bless a wealth tax. Now, the attribution argument addresses both concerns. It provides a principle for maintaining status quo in the current tax system without saying anything that would embolden proponents of a wealth tax. Thanks, Gary. The Solicitor General made the argument that the court had previously limited Macomber, and during the government's time, there was a lot of discussion on Macomber. Can you give us an overview of the case and how it's relevant to the Moore case and the arguments being made here? So Eisner v. McCumber was a Supreme Court case from the 20s, 1920s, I must say, that held that a pro rata stock dividend, that is a stock split in which the shareholder received no actual cash or property, was not income to the shareholder within the meaning of the 16th Amendment. Specifically, the court found that the, quote, characteristic and distinguishing attribute of income is that of a gain, a profit, something of exchangeable value is received or drawn by the recipient for a separate use, benefit, and disposal. Thus, according to the court, mere, quote, enrichment through increase in value of capital investment is not income in any proper meaning of the term. So McComber stands for the idea that the 16th Amendment, which only permits a tax on income without apportionment, does not authorize a tax on unrealized income, for example, on the mere appreciation in assets. Importantly, in in McCumber, the court effectively rejected the attribution argument that the Solicitor General made in Moore, saying what is called the stockholder's share and the accumulated profits of the company's capital, not income. But as the court in McCumber acknowledged, the tax before it was in fact imposed on the shareholder's receipt of the stock dividend, not on her share of the corporation's earnings. So in any case, the holding of McCumber has been greatly narrowed in the years since its issuance to relate solely to the taxability of stock dividends. Subsequent cases have found that realization could take many forms and need not involve actual receipt by the taxpayer of a new, separately transferable asset. Indeed, in Glenshaw Glass, the court stated that the definition of income in McCumber was not meant to provide a touchstone to all future gross income questions. Ultimately, the Solicitor General expressed her belief that the court should overrule McCumber, but she didn't stake her case on it. She just argued that McCumber could continue to be limited to its holding, i.e. a stock split is not income. She also used McCumber as a warning of the perils that it could arise if the court were to attempt and more to articulate the scope 
of a realization requirement. That is, if the court wants to weigh in on the existence of a realization requirement in the Constitution, it really is going to be hard to determine what realization is under every circumstance. So some of the justices from the conservative wing of the court probed the Solicitor General on the outer limits of her argument. Chief Justice Roberts in particular noted that McComber stands for the proposition that the government can't tax appreciation in property and asked the Solicitor General, and I quote, what's left to defend that proposition once you've stabbed McComber? What was the point of this line of questioning? Yeah, that that was a pretty gruesome question, but this goes back to our discussion of the wealth tax. You know, many of the conservative justices, including Roberts, have an eye towards Biden's proposal to tax unrealized gain on the stock and securities owned by the ultra wealthy. You could view this line of questioning as a proverbial stake in the ground. That is, it sounded like Roberts was saying, yeah, we might uphold the MRT, but we're not ready to concede that the Biden wealth tax is constitutional. The Solicitor General did concede that this tax on unrealized gains would present a harder question, but she still argued that unrealized income is indeed income within the meaning of the 16th Amendment. She just said we don't have to ultimately decide that case because the MRT, again, can be justified on attribution. She did seem to concede that a Warren-type wealth tax, a tax on the value of assets, would not in fact be an income tax, but rather a direct tax, and thus could not be justified under the 16th Amendment. I think there's still a question whether it could be constitutional under other arguments, but certainly it was an interesting and important concession that this is not an income tax. So in our previous episode, we had discussed a number of ways that the court could rule in more. Gary, based on the oral arguments and what you heard, how do you see the court ruling? Well, as I've said before, my crystal ball is cloudy, and I've I've also been told by a lot of really smart people that have observed Supreme Court cases that you can be easily fooled by these oral arguments and the questions the justices ask. But it's hard to listen to oral arguments and not expect a fairly narrow ruling. If the court concludes that the MRT is constitutional, I suspect there are a majority of justices on this court that won't want to be seen as blessing a wealth tax. So I wouldn't expect an affirmative statement in the opinion to the effect that there is no realization requirement, like what we saw in the Ninth Circuit opinion. Rather, I'd expect that in that case, the court would say that there is a realization requirement, but the MRT satisfies this requirement through an attribution theory. Or the court might be silent on the realization requirement entirely on the grounds that even if there were a realization requirement, the MRT would satisfy it, unless there's no cause for even concluding on the existence of such a requirement. Alternatively, if the court concludes that the MRT is unconstitutional, I believe there are a majority of justices that won't want to upend long-settled provisions of the tax code. In that case, you would see an opinion that focuses on the particular infirmities of the MRT that we discussed earlier, but otherwise doesn't call into question subpart F or other provisions that can be justified under either an attribution theory or a constructive realization theory. 
So ultimately, I'm not going to predict a winner here, but I do think that the holding will be somewhat narrow regardless of the victor. Thanks, Gary. We'll definitely all be waiting to see how the court rules in this important tax case. So thanks, Gary, for being a guest today, and a special thanks to Elena Mayday for helping with this episode of the podcast. With that, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax in the new year to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, happy holidays and take care.